0: Thanks, Jerry. Jerry Evans, ladies and gentlemen. All right, cool. Well, good morning, everybody. Oh that was a, That was a nice one. That was, that was cool. Why, thank you. You have a green shirt. All right. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, I'm going I'm to start off a little bit differently than normal. Actually, I've already started off differently than normal. to to be quite technical about it. Um, But I want to start off today talking about my mom. Aw, yeah, I know. Uh, Yesterday was my mom's birthday, and she has been listening to our podcasts for quite some time now. And so uh, I've made a few references in my past sermons about my dad and talking about what a cool guy I think he is. And so she was like, last time I was talking to her on the phone, she's like, when are you going to say something nice about me? And so, right now, Mom. So... I know she was half joking, but um, my mom is a super sweet lady. She's a strong woman of God and a great sport for being the brunt of far more than her fair share of our family jokes. Um, So anyway, I love my mom a lot. There you go. Let's pray. (laughs) Uh, Father God, we come before you this morning seeking to learn from you, to learn about you, and to grow in our relationship with you. We love you, and we pray that you open our hearts and our minds to hear from you through your word what you would have us to hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, for this sermon, I am actually drawing kind of heavily from my friend Drew Stedman's sermon on discipleship. Uh, Some of you may know that Drew is the director of U.S. church planting for Antioch Waco, which is the church that planted our church here in Wheaton, Illinois. Uh, As such, I kind of consider Drew to be a pretty solid source to borrow from, and yes, I did get his permission beforehand. So, this morning, we're going to actually be starting a series on discipleship. Yeah, it's a good concept. Discipleship is a good thing. Discipleship is something that our movement, our church movement, Antioch, holds as a very deep core value. We talk about it quite a bit. Whether it's Waco or Wheaton or Wales, it's important to us. Why is it so important to us? And how do we do discipleship well? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about in the coming series, so stay tuned. And full disclosure, although this is something that is super important to our church and something we're firmly committed to, and we think all Christ followers should be committed to, I'm not communicating this message from a position of, I have this all figured out, and now you're going to listen to me like, give you the exact play-by-play of, of how it should go. It's work. <laughs> and, and I still struggle, as many of us do, with carving out the time to actually make discipleship relationships happen but they are immensely important to our walk with Jesus, and they're immensely important to building the community within our church. We want everybody to know how life-giving discipleship really is, and we want to invite you into it. But at the same time, we want to make sure that, you know, you understand that we understand there are a lot of challenges with it, and we don't want this to come across like something that's you know, judgmental or like this heavy burden and like you get the feeling like you're failing if you're not meeting with somebody twice a week for a discipleship relationship. That's not what this is about. This is about like empowering and looking at the good side of this, cool? Cool, all right. So what are we even talking about when we say discipleship? What does that even mean to us? Well, today as we start this series, I'm going to spend time focusing more on the overarching view from 50,000 feet of what discipleship with Jesus is. All of our human, earthly discipleship relationships should be focused on improving our being a disciple of Jesus. So that's what it's all about. It's all about improving our relationship with Jesus. Well, in our church, when we say discipleship, we're most often talking about fellow Christ followers— who are regularly meeting each other, and they're talking about their lives, they're talking about their issues, both their wins and their struggles, and they're praying together, they're hearing from God together, they're offering godly advice on how to conduct themselves as Jesus would have them live. I am a total music nerd. You may find it interesting to know that the term disciple is used a lot in the music world. When guitarist Stevie Ray Vaughan came on the scene back in the 1980s, a lot of critics actually labeled him as being little more than a Jimi Hendrix disciple. What did they mean? They meant that his guitar tone, his style, his approach to the instrument, his stage presence, the way he directed his band, the goofy hats and outfits he sometimes wore, those were all things that he had directly copied from Jimi Hendrix. He reminded people of Jimmy because so many things about him were identical to how Jimmy did them. There was a big portion of Albert King in there too, but I digress. Um, He almost looked like a copycat to some of these early music critics. And that was no coincidence because Stevie had meticulously studied Jimmy. He was all about Jimi Hendrix. He had studied him relentlessly. He mentioned Jimi Hendrix in almost all of the interviews he ever gave about his music and style. And because Jimi Hendrix is considered one of the most innovative, influential guitarists of all time, there are a lot of others who get lumped into the, they're just a Jimi Hendrix disciple thing. That happens all the time, to this very day. In fact, some people actually start out playing guitar because they're Stevie Ray Vaughan fans. And so they study Stevie, and they try to be like Stevie, they're Stevie disciples, and they don't realize they're actually kind of a disciple of Jimi Hendrix, by way of Stevie. Stevie. If you start trying to play guitar exactly like Mike McCready from Pearl Jam, guess what? He's a Jimi Hendrix disciple. And now you kind of are too. (laughs) I think that's a solid reference because it shows us that a disciple sounds like, acts like, and sometimes even looks like the person that they're trying to be a disciple of. And we want to be that way with Jesus. We want our words to be like his words. We want to act like him and on a case by case basis, maybe even look like him. I grew a beard, so your move. <laughs> and if people start copying us, then if we're doing this right, they should start looking like Jesus too. Our discipleship relationships should be pointing people to Jesus. So, how do we learn to do that? Where do we learn to do that? The Bible. The Bible gives us a really great picture of Jesus's words and his actions so that we can emulate them, so that we can actually start to act and look and talk like Jesus. It also helps by painting a really good picture of Jesus's first disciples. This is the group of men that he chose to follow him right off the bat. They followed him really closely as he conducted his ministry here on earth. These are the first people that he gave instructions to for spreading the news about the salvation that he offers us. And we can learn a lot from how Jesus interacted with them. First, before we get too deep into it, I mean, just think about like what that would have been like. I like thinking about this. Like what if you were one of those first people that Jesus chose to be his disciple? So you're like hearing these words in the Bible for the first time, the first time they're ever spoken by the guy who spoke them who's right there. <laughs> Like seeing these miracles happen, like right before your eyes, feeling just the honor and the incredible, I can't even find a word for it, of being chosen by God to be this person who's, who's here with Jesus. And then pairing that with the weight and the responsibility of what God was asking of the people that he chose. He chose me. That's awesome. Oh man, this is heavy, <laughs> you know? Also, these guys were not like flawless, super perfect individuals, not by a long shot. You probably know somebody in your own life who who like seems like they are flawless and perfect and like they never make mistakes and they always do everything right. They're like, you know, we all know that Jesus was the only sinless person who was absolutely perfect to walk the earth, but then like if humanity was ranked in order of who has sinned the most or least, there's like Jesus at the top with 0. And then there's like that one guy or girl you know who's got like eight, you know? Looking at you, John Felker. All right. <laughs> John and Mr. Rogers are neck and neck for second place right now. So. Anyway, Jesus' disciples were not those kinds of people. Jesus did not say, all right, I'm sinless, I'm perfect, I need to pick the people who are closest to perfection already to be my followers. He didn't do that. Yeah, yeah, hallelujah. Thank God. Thank God in heaven. (laughs) They were ordinary people like us. I think he did that on purpose so that we could see, these guys are like me. I I can do this. He's asking me to step into this and can enable me to do it just like he did with them. He plucked these guys off the street. They regularly made mistakes. Yet, God chose them for doing some of the most important work that would ever be done by any human beings in the entire history of mankind. Pretty cool. As we read the New Testament, we keep finding out there are so many similarities between them and us. I want to take a look at some scripture here. It's in Matthew 28. After Jesus had died and he rose from the dead and then he shows back up to the disciples, he calls them all together. He wants to have a meeting. So here's what he said. This is is called the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So... We know a disciple is somebody who's basing their life on emulating Jesus, looking and acting like him. We find out from this that part of being a disciple of Jesus is also, by definition, making other disciples. Disciples make other disciples. Discipleship is helping somebody else look more like Jesus. So, how did Jesus treat his disciples? How did he disciple them. We can use that as a really good framework for how we're supposed to be doing this. Well, he was friends with them. He treated them like friends. They hung out a lot. He taught them. He modeled life for them. He was patient with them. He also didn't shy away from sometimes very directly letting them know when they had messed up, but he never rejected or banished them including Judas. He loved them. He really loved them. That's love. That's what our our sermon series back in January was all about. It was treating them like that. He saw past their flaws to their potential. And then he helped them fix their flaws too. Here's an important thing to take note of. They did not just go to church. Church is great. Church is good. Church is awesome. We're really glad that you're here. We want our Sunday morning service to be this awesome, transformative time where you get to encounter God. You get to grow in community with the other people around us. But this is not the pinnacle and all be all of the Christian life. It just ain't. (laughs) And, And yeah, Jesus went to church. So did the disciples. He took them with him. But they didn't stop there. Jesus was living with them, constantly telling his disciples how the world worked and how they should live in it, both to glorify God and to experience life as God intended for them to live it. He was telling them, this is reality. This is not. This is truth. This is not. This is the way God designed the world to work. That is not. This is how you should think about these things. This is how you should handle these relationships. This is how you should live your life. And you know, a really good reason that we need to focus on this and intentionally pursue discipleship, because our culture is also constantly trying to disciple us. We are being discipled one way or the other. The governmental powers that be, or news outlets, or film and television, people on social media, everybody is trying to disciple you, trying to disciple your kids. They're trying to tell you how the world works and how you should live in it. And those sources will often, almost always, completely contradict and disagree with the teachings of Christ. So who and what are we listening to? Who are we being discipled by? If we're not intentionally choosing that, then we're going with the default and just letting that wash over us. I want to be a disciple of Jesus. I don't want to be a disciple of of an ever-changing, self-glorifying culture that has no regard for the things of God. So how do I start to do that? You ever hear the term, fake it till you make it? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's good advice except for when it really isn't. I'll um, give you a couple of examples. Uh, the last job that I had back in Oklahoma, was, I, I'm sorry, I'm originally from Oklahoma, I moved up here, I'm living in Illinois now. Uh, yeah, Illinois, I like to call it. Um, the last job I had down there was working in real estate title law. It's a long story how I wound up in that field, I had no training in it whatsoever. But it was a good job, and I liked it, and I was good at it, and it paid better than any job I'd had up till that point. So when I moved up to Illinois, naturally I thought, well, I'm gonna try and get another job in real estate title law, right? and I got one pretty quickly. Also pretty quickly, I found out that real estate title law in Oklahoma is about as different from real estate title law in Illinois as like runway modeling and aircraft maintenance. So, yeah. (laughs) Hello, I'm Klaus and I have perfectly sculpted abdominal muscles and hair is like a flowing unicorn mane and now I will work on your Boeing 747 before you fly to Cleveland. Like you, you don't have the skill set for that at all. I mean, in, in Oklahoma, uh, it was it was Indian territory until 1907. It's church and a history lesson, and so we had these things called dead Indian laws, and that was a lot of what I dealt with. Come to Illinois, wasn't ever Indian territory. You don't have that part of your job anymore. So I had to go into my boss, and uh, about one week into that job, and say I have to quit because. Really soon, you're going to figure out, I have no idea what I'm doing. He was like, man, I really appreciate your honesty. Bye. Then I got another job offer, and it was to be a manager at a shop in the mall, a clothing store. I had never worked retail in my entire life, but I took it because I needed a job. So fake it till you make it, right? There were 15-year-old girls bossing me around, telling me what to do, because they actually knew how the shop ran, and I didn't. I had no idea what I was doing. So it was kind of embarrassing and humiliating, so I quit. (laughs) Which I did six days before Black Friday. Yeah, if you want to keep any friends at all in the retail world, don't do that. So... (laughs) I'm pretty sure they still have voodoo dolls on the back wall that they randomly stab, you know, of of me. Anyway, um, realizing that we're a failure is not a good feeling. Faking it only to not make it and get it found out is kind of funny when it's a story from my past that didn't turn out to have any real consequences. But it's not so funny if that's how you feel about your job right now. Or maybe that's how you feel about, like, your relationship with your parents. your kids, or maybe you feel like you're just kind of faking it through your marriage right now. Not funny then. And a lot of us sometimes feel that way about our relationship with God, like we're faking it a little bit. You know, we go to church, we know all the right things to say, we know how to act, but deep down we kind of feel like we're faking it. Well, I have really good news. Jesus doesn't want you to just have to fake it, He wants you to have a real walk with God, a loving, deep relationship with him. He doesn't want you to have a religious facade. He wants you to thrive with God. That rhymes. That sounds like a T.D. Jakes thing. Where It's like, he doesn't want you to have a religious facade. He wants you to thrive with God. I'm so painfully white. I'm not going to do that again. Sorry. Um, So... So how do we make it? How do we not fake it? How do we actually make this thing happen and not just go through the motions? Well, discipleship, right? right? We allow people to actually see in to the deeper things in our life so that we're not just surface level. We're not just saying lingo. We're not just going through the motions. We're actually digging in and getting into each other's lives. Jesus also talks about how we can make it in a parable that's in Matthew 7. is Matthew 7, 24. This is a really well-known parable. Probably heard it before. It says, "'Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. After the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand.' and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and then beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This parable was part of a much longer sermon of Jesus's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's actually several chapters long in the Bible. It's a whole lot of red letters in there. This was Jesus giving a sermon, and what he was doing through this was he was just completely overturning everybody's bad ideologies and bad ideas about how the world worked, telling them, this is not the way God designed things to work. This is. Laid it all out, really long sermon, and then at the end, he gave this parable to illustrate how to apply what he had just dropped on everybody. One had a foundation and made it. One had no foundation and didn't make it. Now There's two big things to be aware of with this. First one, with this parable. First one. Houses on the sand do not fall right away. If our house is built on the sand, we might not even realize that we've got a problem. My house on the sand might not show any signs that it's flawed. It might look beautiful. Do you ever actually, like, look at the foundation of a place when you go visit it? Like, you go to a dinner party, and what do you look at? You don't look at the foundation. You look at the architecture. You might look at the decorations on the walls or the furniture, crown molding, wood floors, countertops. We never go to a dinner party and bust out a flashlight and jump into somebody's crawl space. If I invite you to my house and you do that, I am not inviting you back. We look at other things in life in the same way. We look at the surface stuff. We look at the external aspects of our lives but rarely do we see the unseen foundations. Those go unchecked. Maybe you feel like that with your faith, you know, like we were talking about. You know the lingo. You grew up in church, maybe. Maybe you memorized a lot of Bible verses. Maybe you even serve regularly. And those are all great things, but they don't speak to your foundation. I know because I felt that way before, I was doing all those things but I felt like my behavior was coming a lot more from my background and my culture of having grown up in church. It was coming from that. It wasn't coming from having a deep relationship with the real person of Jesus and continually encountering him and letting him guide my life. Or you might be on the other side of that and you might be new to church and this is like a new experience for you and you don't feel like you know all these catchphrases that Christians use. A lot of the stories and the accounts in the Bible are new to you. You feel like maybe you're a little bit out of your element in certain conversations. Well, that's okay. Because, you know, we humans, we tend to compare ourselves to each other. And we compare each other based on what's on the outside. It's just like comparing our house to somebody else's house. But this parable doesn't show that. It's not comparing houses. And that's good news for you. Because it doesn't say that the wise man built a mansion and the foolish man had like a little shack. For all we know, the foolish man could have had a much nicer looking house. Jesus doesn't even get into that. Small house, big house, new house, old house, doesn't matter, he's concerned with the foundation. If we're looking at things properly, we would rather have a small house on the rock than a mansion on the sand. Why? Because that mansion is going to turn into a rubble heap and your small house will still be standing. So here's a modern day example of this parable. Like, I love how this just lines up so well. This is perfect. San Francisco. It is one of the hottest real estate markets in the entire country, possibly the world. Some developers there started building this gorgeous luxury skyscraper downtown, the Millennium Tower. 57 stories tall, best zip code in America, beautiful building, breathtaking views, they spared no expense on the amenities, multi-millionaires, celebrities, major CEOs, even Michael Jordan himself, have been buying up condos at this skyscraper for $10 million or more. And everything's perfect except they didn't build it on the rock. Exactly. And I'm not joking, it's sinking. This 57-story skyscraper sank eight inches before they even finished construction. It has now sunk over a foot and a half, and it's tilting. (laughs) You can look this up, I'm I'm not making a bit of this up. It looks beautiful, it looks a lot nicer than my house. If we're comparing, the Millennium Tower is way more impressive and intimidating than my little spot in the suburbs, but it's sinking. Engineers think it's going to continue sinking at a rate of one inch per year because, and this is a direct quote, the foundation was embedded into sand. They did not build down to the bedrock. The way they found out was this lady was putting golf balls in her living room, which I guess is what you do when you own a $10 million condo. And the golf balls kept going over into the same spot, like just going over into the same corner. Same stuff happens with my golf game, but it has nothing to do with the foundations. Um... <laughs> So they're building this giant condo, right? They kind of realize it's starting to tilt. More problems start showing up, and they figure out that something is horribly wrong, and understandably, everybody just starts freaking out. Soon, cracks started forming on the building's interior columns. You can see cracks underneath on the foundation. The parking garage walls are crumbling and leaking water. But outside, everything still looks okay. The developers are saying, everything's fine, nothing to worry about. CBS News is calling it San Francisco's leaning tower of lawsuits. (laughs) Residents have been trying to sell off their condos at losses of multiple millions of dollars. While the rest of the San Francisco real estate market has been appreciating rapidly. There are some people who are saying they're going to have to knock 20 floors off of this thing. Take 20 floors off of a skyscraper just to make this thing safe. There are other people who are saying that's not even gonna work. This whole thing is just doomed and it's worthless. And it sits in an earthquake zone. There's some very justifiable concern here. We do not want to be spiritual millennium towers. Maybe our house doesn't look flashy. Maybe it isn't awe-inspiring on the outside. Maybe I'm not really eloquent with all my words and lingo, but if I'm built on the rock, that's what counts. So the second thing to be aware of with this parable, the first was houses on sand don't fall overnight or right away, I should say. The second warning, trials will come. In John 16:33, Jesus says, in the world, you will have trials and tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So whether that's the weather, or an earthquake in San Francisco, or a hardship in our relationships, or the devastating loss of a loved one, or a career or life setback that threatens to throw us into a dark depression, trials will come. They're going to come into our lives, and they will expose the quality of our foundation. Now, for some people, that might be decades away. For some people, maybe that's you right now. Maybe that's why you came to church this morning. Regardless, we are all going to have them. We all face them. Nobody is immune. The storm came on both of these houses. Living a life following Jesus is not a get out of ever having a bad day card. We have to be careful because if we're building our house on the sand on a sunny day, We could be fooled into thinking everything's cool. I can just keep on living like this. There's no consequence to it. We could go years without any calamity and be lulled into a false sense of security. We have to build our spiritual lives in such a way that we are ready for the storms and trials that will come later. But there's great hope here, because in that verse, he ended it by saying, take heart. I have overcome the world. Anybody in this room can build a strong foundation. Thank God. We don't have to fear or worry about what may come our way, because we have true security in Jesus. He wants you to make it. He wants you to weather the storms that are going to happen in life. He wants you to be confident and not fear the hurts and heartaches of this world. There's a main point in this passage that a lot of people miss, and we used to sing a song about this in Sunday school, about the whole wise man, foolish man, house on the rock, house on the sand. You might remember the song. When I was in Sunday school, I thought that this meant something different than it actually means. I thought it meant that the wise man knew Jesus, the wise man knew God, and the foolish man did not, you know? The wise man was going to church, and he knew about Jesus, and the foolish man was just one of those heathen sinners who's out there just, you know, living like hell, doing whatever he wants to do, hasn't even got a clue in the world what VeggieTales is. That's not what Jesus said. Let's go back and read it again. Matthew 7, 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Then skip to verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So both people knew the word of God. He was was giving this to the to the audience that was listening to him. They were there hearing Jesus. They had just heard the words that he's talking about, who hears my words and does them, hears my words, doesn't do them. He was talking about what he had just said to them. So both of these kinds of people were right there. Both of them heard the words of Jesus. Maybe they both said amen at the end of Jesus' sermon that day. They both posted the tweetable phrase like on social media. Maybe they both talked about it with their friends at lunch afterwards, but only one of them actually went home and did anything about it. And that is the difference between a house on the rock and a house on the sand. It's really easy for me, because I'm an analytical person, it's easy for me to get mistaken into thinking that I've got things together because I know it. But that's not what a disciple is. A disciple is somebody who lives what they know from Jesus. And I want to live the words of Jesus, not just be content with knowing them. I do not want to put my faith in what I know but I want to be able to make that next step and take it from knowledge to application. We need to live the words of Jesus, not just know the words of Jesus. And you can't follow the words of Jesus unless you know them first, so studying Scripture is super important, immensely important, but we can't just study. We have to carry our study of God's Word into obedience of God's Word. Discipleship helps us do that back to the Great Commission. Uh, As much as this parable gets misread sometimes, so does the Great Commission. So back uh, to verse 19, it says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. He's saying, don't just teach them. Don't just tell them about me. Teach them to obey me. And there is a big difference between teaching people and teaching people to obey. How do I know that? I have three boys under the age of seven. Big difference between teaching and teaching to obey. I I also have a a baby girl. She's 11 months old and could do no wrong, so... She's she's exempt. (laughs) But if my goal was just to teach, what would I do? How do I teach well? If if I wanna teach people, what do I do? I do what I'm doing right now. I get up higher than you, and I'm louder than you, so you listen to me, right? That's how you teach people. I would gather more people and talk to them. I could write a book, I could host a podcast, write a blog, hold a conference, start a school, hold classes, have a seminar. What percentage of the work of the body of Christ is actually going towards teaching people a ton, right? There's a lot of teaching going on. And I love the gift of teaching. I am all about it. It's a gift I feel that God has blessed me with and I love operating in it. It's a gift that's really celebrated in the Bible, but it is still just communicating information. And I think it's kind of easy to teach people and really hard to teach people to obey. So, Since it's kind of hard, we don't really do it as often, and we can neglect it. Because teaching people requires transferring information. Teaching people to obey requires something totally different, modeling it. I have to live life with you, and then I have to model my life to you, which means I have to have built a life that's worth modeling. I can't just talk about hearing God. I've got to help you recognize the voice of God for yourself. When we disciple others, we can't just teach them the importance of reading Scripture. We have to help them learn how to read the Bible for themselves. That's actually a huge benefit of life groups. I know this is about discipleship, but I'm going to plug the life groups a little bit here too. I had somebody ask me recently, they said, you know, we talk about studying the Bible a lot in church, but how do I know how to do that? I said, come to a life group. Because every time we have a life group, we dig into the Word of God, we look at scriptures, and then we have a discussion, and we talk about what is God saying through this? What was the point of Him communicating this to us? How do we respond to it properly? So we do that in life groups. We learn how to study the Word of God. People have also said, we talk about prophecy in this church. We talk about that gift. How do I even know how to step that out? Come to a life group, (laughs) because at our life groups, we have a time of worship, and we intentionally step out and give words to other people. And so we're able to do it, and it's not like this awkward, strange kind of thing, because we're all friends, we're all Christ followers who are just trying to obey the call of God on our lives together. In discipleship relationships, we're instructing, we're setting examples, and we're also holding each other accountable to do the things That God is calling us to do, whether that's something that's a big picture God is calling like all of Christianity to do, or if it's even something that's specific to your situation, specific to your life. What is God calling you to do? And you can't mass produce that. You cannot have a book or a podcast or even the guy up on stage hold you accountable to be obedient to Christ in every aspect of your life. We need discipleship to do that. If we don't realize that and we keep putting our focus completely on teaching, then we run the risk of specializing in sand house construction. Teaching people, but not teaching people to obey. I don't wanna do that. And I think we don't want to do that. It's like the difference between teachers and parents. And I love good teachers. Teachers, good teachers are awesome. I did not have a whole lot of good teachers as I was growing up, so I find them very valuable. (laughs) Um, But I think even really great teachers would probably say to you, if you ask them, even good teachers can't replace the role of a parent. They're different things. And honestly, teachers can truly do their best when parents are doing their job their best. That way, teachers can focus on teaching and not having to fill all the gaps from what parenting was supposed to have taken care of. We have to be people who live the words of Jesus and not just know them. And teaching people to obey, just heads up, it's going to get messy sometimes. You might hear the phrase among us, being in somebody else's boat when we're talking about discipleship. I think that's a really good, a good phrase to use. It applies well to discipleship because it's not just telling somebody how to get where they want to go on their journey. It's climbing in and helping them get there, Right? But man, some people's boats really need a lot of work. And I know from experience, I don't always see the holes in my own boat. I need strong disciples of Christ around me to point out where I need to acknowledge that I might know something in this area, but despite my knowledge, I'm not walking in obedience there yet. I actually got called out on that recently by a couple of guys in my circle. It wasn't the most fun experience in the world, but they were right and it meant that I had some apologizing to do and I had to make a few other phone calls and apologize because they pointed out, you've got some knowledge in this area, but you're not walking this out, you're not being obedient in this. So it meant I needed to humble myself, make some phone calls, make some apologies and let people know that I would be making some changes. That's how this is supposed to work. When we think about being obedient to Jesus, it can seem overwhelming. Like when you read through that whole Sermon on the Mount, I mean, some of it's just kind of like, I don't even understand what he's saying here. Good reason to study scripture and go to a life group and dig into those things. The other parts of it can sometimes just seem impossible. Like he raised the bar so high on some of these things. It's like, how can I possibly live up to all of that? Well, God does not command perfection of us. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good amen right there. He just asks us to be committed to following him, listening and obeying the next thing that's in front of us. And when we've accepted Christ as our Savior and we've made him Lord over our life, the Holy Spirit, God himself, comes to live within us, to guide us, to remind us, and to give us wisdom To carry on a relationship with us so that we can be far more obedient than we ever could have been on our own. If you commit to being a disciple, I know you are going to find out that God is right there with you. We can go ahead and have the the band guys come back up. About building a solid foundation, it takes time. And taking that time is well worth it. God does not expect you to have everything all together by the end of this sermon and walk in perfect, unflinching obedience by the end of the day. Instead, he's just asking for a yes in our hearts to the next thing that's in front of us. And back to the Great Commission, the uh, the command for the church. There's a really powerful promise in there. He's asking us to do something. But why? Because he already did something. I think we should take a look at that the way he frames this, he starts off by saying, all authority in heaven has been given to me. And he ends with, and I am with you always. Those are the bookends. God has all authority and he is with you always. Whatever the problem, no matter what you are facing, God has all authority over it and he is with you. Amen. (laughs) Also, even the first disciples, they struggled with this. Even with that, even with that reassurance, they struggled with it. If you continue reading in the New Testament, you will find out they did not follow the Great Commission right away. They stayed in Jerusalem. They struggled hard with the idea of spreading the gospel to non-Jews. They actually stayed there until they were forced out by persecution And then God still had to continually give them these miraculous visions and visitations by angels and all this stuff just to get them to get off their rumps and go do the thing that Jesus had already told them to do. They needed prompting. They needed reminders. They needed accountability. We do too. We need discipleship. Some other quick encouraging points about being in discipleship as we wrap up. Number one, if you do this, it shows that you're in a good stance spiritually, really. You're in a posture of humility and teachability. This is a absolute pride killer. (laughs) You're in a good spot. Number two, it shows that you are prioritizing your relationship with Jesus. You are growing in obedience towards him by taking the time out of your schedule to make it happen. And that ain't easy, especially these days, especially if you've got a young family with a bunch of kids and babysitting is kind of crazy. Especially if you're taking on a huge class load. Especially if you've got a, a job that's like really demanding. It's not easy to make this happen. It's hard work, we know. It's like, this week, can we make this happen? Uh, well, I've got this. Man, that's normal. It's, you're, you're, you're not failing if it's like, well I, I had to miss a week because I had something come up. But it is something that we want to actively, intentionally be pursuing. Because it's important. Number three, it strengthens us to know that we are not the only ones going through what we're going through. We aren't the the only ones struggling with these issues. Do not believe the lie that Satan would love you to believe that you're all alone in this. That nobody else would understand if they knew all of your junk. Nobody else would accept you if they truly knew what was going on in your mind. Don't believe the lie also that God's idea of you is totally shaped by your performance. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of rules. There's a lot of stuff to take in in that sermon on the Mount and other parts of the Bible, but God did not just throw out this list of impossible things for you to do and then float back up to his throne and look down on you with this scowl just waiting for you to screw up again. That's not him. That is so far from the truth we know from these verses that we read, what God really did was he paid the price for your sins when Jesus died on the cross. He gave you salvation and he put his spirit inside of you to live within you, to give you power that you don't have and promised to never leave you. So yes, God called you to obey something, but he also told you he can empower you to do it and he's never going to leave you while you're trying. Let's pray.